Welcome back to Smith & Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Make sure you subscribe to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcast. Please rate and review, download and share as well. Thanks again to Clark Kellogg and Bobby Marks for joining us. Randy Foy coming up later on this hour, but on the line right now, we are pleased to be joined again by a guest we always love having on the show, a longtime NBA coach, a former player as well, champion Lionel Hollins. Lionel, thanks for the time today. My pleasure, man. How are you guys doing? All good. And, and Eric, you forgot to add, the man who taught me more about team play and not to bet on games in 1977 than anybody else. When the Sixers <laughs> went up 2 nothing, when the Sixers, and Lionel, he's laughing because Lionel and I have talked about this, sitting down on a bench in Vancouver, in a bench in Memphis, when the Sixers went up 2 nothing on the Blazers, and I was like this young kid. I'm like, who are these cats in Portland? Like, they're down 2-0 to Doc and George McGinnis and, and like, mo- like no chance. Doug Collins, like, no, 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 no. This, this is done. This is done. And one of the few times when a team came back, E, after being 2-0, we saw it last year, down 2-0 in the finals and winning four straight. And that taught me a lesson. And I talked to Dave Twardzik about it when he was the GM in, in Charlotte. And it, it taught me more about the sum of the parts. And, Coach, that's where I'm going to start with you. Everybody wants to talk about the East right now. The Lakers, you were there. You got a championship ring with them. The Lakers are below the line right now. What happened? We're still watching it. I still can't believe that this team is struggling for its play in life. And my, my two questions are, are they going to make it? And, 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 and what the heck happened? Well, first of all, if they're going to make it, but it'll depend on what they do in the next few days. Will LeBron come back and play? Will AD come back and play? Can they win some games with both of those guys playing? Um, the, the start off, it, you know, people love names. They love stars. But it takes a balance of players, both stars, dirt workers, uh, energy, you know, defensive players, you know, it's not just stars that win games. I mean, if you go back and look at the last year's champions with the Bucks, I mean, they had Giannis, they had Middleton, they had Drew Holiday, but they had a lot of people that did things and, and, and played roles that uh, provided them with the, the, the intangibles, so to speak, but they're not intangible. They're, they're really necessary components to winning, and that's defensive players, guys that, dive on the floor guys that take charges and um the, the the lakers have not had that all year they haven't had the energy they haven't had the consistent effort but uh um you know when you put together names you know you hear everybody say well you need veteran players to win in the playoffs but you also need uh, uh youth and energy you know and and that that effervescent vibe that that young people bring as well, you know, you, you do need veterans, you need to experience. But I always poo-poo that because I played on a team that was the youngest in NBA history to win a championship. You know, mm. starting lineup 24, 24, 23, 23, and 21. Those were the starters, and uh, we hadn't been in the league very long. And but we we knew how to play. We had a great balance and great chemistry. And the, the Lakers haven't had that. And on top of that, the injuries. Uh, you know, you can't, when your best players are consistently out, maintain. I look at the Clippers, whose stars have been out, and they've 
they struggle. They've kept their head, you know, a little bit in the in, in a better position. But uh, their role players have played really well, and some of the guys they picked up have played really well. So uh, that's the difference between the Lakers and the Clippers, and why the Lakers in the, in the boat that they're in. You know, Lionel, as I'm sitting here listening to, to the way you're describing it, about the, the mix of, you know, stars and vets and dirt workers, as you said, and, and youth and, and energy and, and whatnot, perhaps there are maybe no two greater examples of both of the sides that you were just talking about than the two teams that are sitting atop the Western Conference right now. Phoenix has the blend of those grinders, those vets, that youth, those stars, and then you look at Memphis, there are a couple of blips and a couple of, uh, you know, exceptions to the rule. But for the most part, that's a very young, fairly inexperienced team, but playing the right way on the same page and proving that they can do it with that youth. No doubt. Uh, you know, I, I think those two teams are Phoenix was there last year. Memphis was coming last year and they busted out in a huge way. They're probably going to win 60 games this year. Uh but I'd, I'd give you two other teams. I'd give you Dallas. You know, I'd give you Minnesota. Uh, you know, and I always ask the question, what's, what's uh, experience versus inexperience? You know, you could have a young person that knows how to play and knows how to win. You can have a veteran person who doesn't know how to play and doesn't know how to win, but talented both on both sides. And if that's the component that's missing when we talk about winning and losing, players play, and then there's players that play to win. And, you know, I was in college when I first got out of the NBA, and I was volunteering at my school, and there was a, a veteran coach, and he says we were sitting in the gym watching a bunch of high school players play, and he said there's a lot of players in here that play basketball. He said, but there's not very many basketball players. And basketball players play to win. They, there's a purpose. There, there, there's a plan behind why they walk on the court and what they're doing. And that's the missing component when you see uh, young teams not winning. But when you see young teams win, it means that they have enough guys on their team that understand what it takes to win, what it takes to sacrifice, and they're molded into that, in, into that uh, concept. And, and when, they, when they are, they're going to win if they have talent. See, talent is still the overriding key. And, uh, you know, we can talk about experience. We can talk about inexperience. We can talk about uh, stars. Uh, stars become stars because they know how to win. And then stars lose that stardom when their age gets to a point where they can't carry and do the things and lead the teams in the way that's necessary for them to win. Uh, Lionel, how, how – I mean, we haven't had it very long with the play-in tournament, but uh, – it's like a game seven when if you're seven, eight, nine, ten. Once you get to, I guess the play-in or the playoffs, or as Eric and I are calling it, the wild card, because people, some people don't see it as the playoffs. But to me, anytime you have to play one game and you can be packing up your bag when it's over, to me that's a playoff game. Um, how how much? I look at Charlotte in the East as the the team that doesn't have the quote experience. Uh, and Cleveland, those two teams right now in the plan. And then I look at the West. I look at a team. Uh, I look at a team like LA. If they were to get in, how dangerous would they be? And 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 how much? How much do you have to lose before you can win to 
gain the experience, and as you say, learn how to win, play to win, and 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 get that that you know that slap in the face at the end of the season. Well, there's no there's no time frame. There really isn't. I mean, like I just told you, we we played for the championship when we were put together. We had seven new guys on the team out of twelve. Seven. We were all young, but we all knew how to play. You put the dream team together. They're all veteran guys, all stars, but they knew how to win. They knew how to sacrifice and submerge their games and their egos for the good of winning. That th- Those things that have nothing to do with talent. It's a mindset that you go out there with. And I think in today's game, we have a lot less of that because players uh-huh. are built up to be stars in the, the whole scheme of our uh, – new wave of promoting marketing is he's a star. He's the man. He's supposed to have the shots. He's supposed to have the minutes. He's supposed to, he's not held accountable, but stars are supposed to be held accountable on every level. And their talent just rises because they're in a parameter of discipline, of responsibility, of accountability. And when you do that, when you've done that your whole life, it doesn't matter where you play. You see guys that in the all-star game, a lot of guys submerge their game, probably because there's not a lot of competitive spirit out there. They do. And it's like, I'm just here. I'm happy to be here. I'm an all-star. But there was a time when all-star games were very competitive and there's guys that couldn't function in that setting because they couldn't submerge their game. A star can go anywhere and and be successful and fit in and blend in. You say, well, how are those two going to work out? Because they understand what it takes to win, how to play to win. That's why why it works out. You know, but a star that's just been a scorer his whole career, been a starter, been a star, and you take him to it. I'm going to give you a real good example. The, The 80s with the Lakers, they had at times, they had five or six, I mean, a James Worthy, uh, Magic Johnson, Kareem, uh, uh, Spencer Haywood. Uh, all those guys were number one picks in the draft. How do they mesh and blend together and be, star- and be uh, a team? It's because they understand what it takes to win. They're willing to ex- embrace a role. The, the Celtics of the, of the 60s and uh, even the 80s, they bought in players that had been great players in their own right and they fit roles. Today, it's hard for players to go from star to role player. You know, primary player to secondary mm-hmm. player, starter to bench player. It, it's, a, it's a hard transition for the stars of today. But there was a time when stars knew when their game was descending and still wanted to play, and they played. They accepted different roles and played. Now, players talent starts to diminish and they have a hard time accepting who they are today versus what they've been most of their career. I mean, I love Russell Westbrook. I think, you know, he has been a great talent. If you watch an interview and somebody asks him this question, how do you feel when you, uh, you know, you're not shooting very well? He says, what are you talking about? He says, why would I be lack confidence? I have 23,000 points. That's not the point. Because mm-hmm. all of that is previous, past. What are you today? 
Are you acknowledging that your athleticism is down a little bit, that you can't get to the basket consistently? And it happens to all the stars. It's not just Westbrook, everybody. I mean, you look at Carmelo. Carmelo's not the physical specimen that he was when he came in as a young player. He's accepted a role and embraced being in a different position because he loves to play. He loves to compete. And that's the thing that a lot of media doesn't get, but it's also a thing that the fans doesn't get when, when a player has to submerge his previous ego and pride and humble himself to understand, I can help this team because I can do this. I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. I can't do all the things that I did before, so why would I expect myself to, and why would anybody else expect me to be able to do it? Coach, I got one more quick one for you here. We're, we're coming close to our break, but the one X factor we haven't talked a whole lot about, I suppose, is coaching, period. The impact of the coach as well. And, and, and quite honestly, Lionel, I'm not even sure what my question here is, more just trying to give some, some credit and some respect to the coaches that are out there doing such a fine job this year that if I had a ballot in front of me, I don't even know where I would go. I mean, I could give you five, six, seven, ten names right now from, you know, from Spolstra to uh, uh, Udoka to uh, uh, Nick Nurse to uh, Monty Williams and Chris Finch. I mean, like, it's, it's unbelievable the job that so many coaches have done with their rosters this season. Well, coaches are, are, are the conduit that ignites the spark that drives most of the players to blend in. It starts with communication, motivation, and creating a culture of expectation and holding players accountable, stars, role players, everybody. Because even in the scenarios that I was just presenting, stars have to sacrifice as well because stars could go out there and shoot every time and score all the points. But is that how you're going to win? Is that the best formula for winning? So coaches are very important, and I like – what uh, J.B. Bickerstaff has done in Cleveland, right? I like yeah. what the uh, 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 the guy Taylor Jenkins right here in Memphis has done. I like what Jay Kidd has done in Dallas. There's so many – and Finch in Memphis who was assistant coach in Toronto. I mean, what he's done in Minnesota. These guys have done great jobs of creating cultures, changing the mindset or influencing the change of mindset because uh, players – have to make that change in their own mind. But you, you, you can create a culture and you create a work ethic and you create uh, relationships with these players to get them to trust that what you're saying is correct. And it's not just putting in a play, but it's the why of what you're doing and how to get the most out of that particular play. Everybody can run a play, but everybody doesn't get the same thing out. I go back to the triangle with, with Phil Jackson. A lot of people tried to triangle after it was successful, but they didn't know how to implement the inner parts that made the triangle successful. Coach, great insight today. Really love having you on. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, man, all the time, anytime. Thanks, Lionel. There is Appreciate longtime it. NBA coach Lionel Hollins, NBA champion, former player as well. We'll step aside for the break and come back with Randy Foy on Smith & Jones. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Lou. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back. 
back on Smith and Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Subscribe to Smith and Jones wherever you get your podcast. Please rate and review, download and share as well. And uh, we had a chance to tape this interview a little bit earlier with former NBA player and former uh, guard at Villanova, teammate of Kyle Lowry's as Lowry and the Heat come to Toronto on Sunday. So between Lowry and the NCAA and Final Four with Nova in it, lots to discuss with Randy Foy. Randy, we will get to, to Final Four talk in a little bit. Certainly want to dive into that with you and, and, and chat about Villanova and, and the history, let alone present day uh, Villanova. Lots to talk to you about. But before all of that, big weekend coming up. The Raptors playing Friday night against the Orlando Magic, but Sunday back home in Toronto, and it's the return of Kyle Lowry for the first time in a different uniform since leaving the Raptors. And Randy, you're a guy that obviously knows Kyle quite well from the college days, let alone uh, professional days as well. Um, we want to just pick your brain a little bit on, on Kyle, the, the person. We got to know him for quite a bit, almost a, almost a decade in Toronto. But what sort of change did you see in Kyle Lowry, not just the player, Randy, but the person from who he was in Villanova to who he ultimately has become as a champion and multi-time all-star at the NBA level? Um, he's, he's, he's has always been an, um, a top-notch competitor. The one thing I have seen of him, um, especially, you know, having kids and, you know, being married, I just seen, I have seen the, um, just the maturity um, and, you know, being, you know, a little immature to turn into a man. And a lot of that, some of that growth happened at Villanova, but just for me watching afar and me being close up, you know, having conversations with him, um, I think a lot of that growth, also happened a lot when he was in Toronto. I don't know what you guys have in the water there, but you definitely um, <laughs> helped him, you know, come, go from you know being a, a young man and turning turning him into a man. So I just think a lot of it, the maturity came from being in Toronto and and having having kids. Uh, Randy, and uh, you know, you you mentioned that about Toronto, the, the having kids. I mean, Eric's a dad. Like we're all we're all parents. Um, but but I, I look at um, coming to Toronto, a place that uh, was fighting hard for acceptance in the NBA as well. And it seemed to me that Kyle always, as good as he was, it, it, it seemed like all the way through his career, like at, at Nova and then when he got drafted in Memphis and Houston, he was always, as you say, competitive but fighting for that acceptance. And it just seemed like Toronto accepted him as you said, what's in the water, and then it starts to blossom. Yeah, I just, like, Kyle is the person that, you know, if he feels as though he's loved, right, he's going to love you back even even more. And I think that in Toronto, you guys, the fan base, you know, put your arms around them, doing good games, doing bad games, doing, you know, trade talks. Whatever the case was there, you guys, always had your arm around him and you always kept a, a warm place in your hearts for him and, and he feels that he may not express it as much as you know others would like but I know personally when he feels though you care for him and you're there for him he's going to love you back um, even more and he's going to do things like like Kyle walked up to me and asked me he said hey what you want to watch what type of watch do you want and I was like 
I was like, whatever you're going to give me. I was like, I appreciate it, whatever you. And he was like, no, I just appreciate you always being there for me and always supporting there and being a big brother for me. And that's the type of person he is. And I felt as though the city of Toronto has given that to him. So with you giving that love to him, he always gave it his all on the court for you guys. Speaking with Randy Foy, Randy, I, I was doing a little digging here before we chatted, and, and I, I go back, uh, I believe, almost four years to when you had uh, Kyle on a podcast that you were doing at that time and, and you know, a, a deep dive into the conversation that the two of you had. And one of the things that stands out, I didn't hear the entire conversation, but and, and listen, we've both talked to Kyle about this over the years, but I'd be interested in your perspective. You just mentioned the city of Toronto and the way that it embraced Kyle. But what about the city of Philadelphia and what made him the type of person, the type of player he was from his upbringing to his collegiate days and to where he is now? Because, you know, you obviously have Philly in your roots, too, as a Newark guy real close to Philly, but then playing at Nova as well. You know all about Philly. And how did that both maybe help and potentially hurt at times the type of guy he was or the type of trust he had in people and harden him in both a positive and maybe negative way over the years? The city of brotherly love. If you <laughs> if you go out there and you give it your all for them, they're going to love you. If you go out there and they feel as though you quit, they're going to boo you. If you look at Cal and you look at the way Cal plays, there's nothing, especially when it comes to attitude and sports, Cal just fits that description of a Philadelphia kid. Blue collar, extremely hardworking, don't take nothing from nobody. You tell me I'm too little. I don't hear that. I believe that I'm a giant, right? And I just I just feel as though like that's ingrained in him. From the first time he he practiced against us when we were um at Villanova, he came in there and he was in high school and he thought he was a starting point guard. And a couple times, you know, I had to break up fights with him and Mike Nardi because he wasn't shy about it. He would tell Mike Nardi to his face that, hey, I'm here to take your spot, and there's nothing you can do about it. And that's just that Philly grit. That's just that That's just that blue-collar, hard-working mentality where it doesn't matter who you are, you're not going to outwork me. And at the end, I'm always going to beat you out. And that's Philly for you right there. Randy, I know that. We, I always make the joke about being a kid in Toronto here and our provincial team going down to play against kids in the Sunny Hill League. And I grew up, I learned to play in New York. So I knew what I was in for. And some of our guys, you know, 6'7", six, 6'8", six, they were getting killed by 5'10 guys in the post. I'm like, hey, man, you're in Philly now. Like this <laughs> like this, this business, you got to go to work or else you're going to get your hat handed to you. You talk about that Philly grit. Randy, where did you see it transform with Kyle to not just grit, but leadership in pulling the others along with you and not just by, I mean, he's all, he'll always be the example, but now he's become like a, like a, a true leader, a vocal leader, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a guy who meets with coaches and has stuff to say in the huddle and it's constructive. He's not combative. Like where do you see, where did you see that change with Kyle? I think his, I would say his his beginning of his the summer of his sophomore year the summer of his um his sophomore year he just was he was different you know he was 
he did a lot of immature things his freshman year. And, you know, Coach Wright had it up to here with him. When Coach Wright was ready to say, hey, this kid, we gotta, we're going to help him get to where he got to go, but this kid has to go. And once I saw him come in his sophomore year, it was like he, was, he still would do, like, little things that would rub Coach wrong and rub some of the players wrong. But instead of it being ten times, it would only be five times. So you could see he was getting better. And he was around me a lot, and I was extremely poised. I was quiet, you know, humble kid are working, but he's around me. And I, and I felt as though that started to, to rub off on him. And a lot of that 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 punch-you-in-the-face mentality attitude from him, it rubbed off on me my junior and senior year. And so I kind of figured it out where, you know, I can make it work. And he started figuring it out where, all right, I don't have to be this tough. I don't always have to have this, this shield up or my guard up. You know, I can let it down sometimes because – you know, um, I had proven my freshman year that I was supposed to be here, and I'm proving it now in my sophomore year that I was supposed to be here. And then in the games, sometimes I would take the ball in the games at the end of the game, and I would play point guard. And then we got to a stage, like, towards the end of his sophomore year where I would try to get the ball, and he's like, no, no, I got it. We're running this. And I would look at him like, oh, okay. Like, and that's just the development and growth of him. So I start seeing it as early as, you know, his sophomore year when he was, you know, 19, 20, I just started seeing, like, he every single year he was getting better and better. He was under, he was understanding the game. And as I follow his NBA career, which I still am now, every single year he comes back better. He comes back a better ball handler. He comes back a better shooter. He comes back a better leader. And I think that started from the early ages with, with Coach Wright because him and Coach Wright were bang heads a lot. And I was like, man, this is like it would get in. It was intense, where Cal wouldn't talk for weeks, and you know, Coach Wright would be on him for the littlest thing, something that someone else would do. He probably would let slide. He knew with Cal, he couldn't let it slide because if you gave Cal an inch, he would take him out. So they had some they had some clashes. They were for the ages, but at the end of the day, you know, Cal was one of the greats there. Coach Wright put his jersey on the Raptors, and it's just somebody who I. You know, Cal is just a kid that I, I just appreciate crossing paths with him in life because we're still friends to this day. Speaking with Randy Foy. Hey, Randy, I'm going to apologize ahead of time here. Long-winded question coming, long-winded question. But we've we've talked, Jonesy okay. and I, to uh, so many athletes over the years, so many players over the years. That, but I want your perspective on this too, especially as as a guy. Uh, you talk about how tough Philly can be, and 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 growing up in Newark and whatever, and 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 some of the, the the hurdles and obstacles you've had to face in life as well. This is something we've you know dived into with our colleague. Now he does the Raptors television broadcast. Another Nova guy, and Alvin Williams. How tough can it be? Yeah, exactly. How tough can it be or how tough is it on – and I'm not just talking Kyle here, Rand. I'm talking your situation, any young player, to be coming from whether it be a great upbringing or a rough upbringing, but to be thrust into the spotlight of a major program, to be thrust into the spotlight then as a top pick in the NBA, to be thrust into the spotlight of being a go-to guy for an NBA franchise, then an all-star, then a champion, and all this time that, as we've discussed, you're growing – and you're maturing, or at least you're trying to grow and mature, but it's under this giant spotlight that's shining on you with the media attention and now the rise of social media over the last decade and everybody with a phone in their hand that's got a camera and all of the the the, the um, pressures 
and the pulls that are coming from your inner circle, your outer circle, everything that goes into that pot, and you're trying to keep it on the rails. How tough can that be? It's, it's extremely difficult because you come from a, an environment where you always have to keep your, your guard up. You, you, have to under, you have to understand in certain situations where there's no such thing as failure. Where you, and then you get to a place like, like Nova, and Nova is a place where, you know, coach wants you to express yourself. Coach want to hear your ideas. You know, coach wants you to, to be a leader in a way that you probably have never been a leader before because a lot of us in, in the cities, and just the way it is, we grew up in single-parent households. You know, if that's your mom's or your dad, whatever the case may be, or with your grandparents. So in a lot of situations, you were the baby. Right, and you got away with a lot. But when you step into a place like Nova, and you're a lead guard, or you're a guard, and you want to be on the floor playing in front of twenty thousand people, you know, on a nightly basis, you got to be able to lead. And that's like you got to be able to communicate verbally with the coach. You got to be a, an extension of the coach on the floor. And a lot of times in high school, to be honest with you, we just use our athleticism, or our strength, or our speed, or our God gift ability. Um, gifted abilities where we don't have to do as much. But when you get to those places, you, you really have to turn it up. And I think for, for, for me, that was, a, that was a place where I needed growth. I think for Kyle, that was a place where he needed growth. And then we're not even talking about making it to the NBA where you're making millions of dollars a year. And now you got to understand that on the court or just even walking around, you're a Fortune 500 company, right? Within your own sense, right? And you you have to protect right. that. You have to you have to protect that, and then you have to protect your family. Not only your wife and kids, but you got to protect your mother. You know your cousins. Things that you feel as though people say you shouldn't do, you know you have to do it. And I'm not saying go ahead and give them a, a large amount of money, but you have to be there in some capacity. And so it's just through, throughout the journey, you know, you're learning, you know, every single day. You, you, gotta, you understand, too, that you can't do certain things. It's all, like you said, it's always a camera. There's always a microphone. There's always someone critiquing you. So, and then they really won't say nothing to the person that's critiquing you or putting you in situations where they're making you out to be the bad guy, but they're looking at the way that you respond. And if you respond in a certain way, then that's not good. That's not a pro there. So I just, I just think that the way he has handled life as a, as a young adult has been nothing short of awesome. Uh, Randy, um, you know, Villanova uh, into the Final Four this weekend. Um, you know, the program's got, got great history, uh, produced, you know, some great players, and I know dating back from, from talking with my guy, Eddie Pinckney, dating back to Roley's time there, it was always a family-type atmosphere, and, and we always talk about how family pushes family. Coach Wright, I mean, dealing with some of these kids now, I'm sure he's looking at it saying, man, having dealt with Kyle and Randy and Alan and, and some of the kids from that era, <laughs> this, 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 I'm not saying it's easy, but he's... He's benefited from being around you guys. You've probably taught him as much 
as he's taught you. And talk to me about the program and where it's headed because a lot of blue blue blood programs go in waves, and it just seems like Nova is there every year, and Coach Wright is a big part of that. Yeah, it's just it's just consistency, it's communication, it's consistency, and it's the the athlete coming in, understanding that on the court, right on the court, you become us, we don't become you. So we we jump stop with with two feet in the paint unless you got a wide open dunk. If you can't do that and you can't play here, we pivot right and find our teammates. Right, we don't your step. Right, we do things a certain way because we know at the end of games, especially in college. Yeah, referees call charges. Right, referees call charges. Kids. Kids are not kids don't understand that you have to be able to shoot. So you can't just try to get to the basket with a crazy handle and make layups. You gotta be able to shoot. You have to be able to get your, your teammates into into their positions where they wanna shoot. And I just I think Coach Wright, like you said, there's family there. But with him dealing with us, like you gotta think crazy from North. Curtis something came from um, Brownsville, Brooklyn, Powell's from Philadelphia. Right. He got all these different kids coming in from all these, these cities with a, a hundred people behind them saying, Coach, you need to do this and you need to do that. The kids that he get now, he can could, he could pick and choose. He could say, I want this kid because he fits the mold of a Villanova guy. I, I'll take this kid because he fits. With us, he had no other choice because he wasn't Jay Wright yet, nor was I Randy Foy, nor was he Kyle Lowry. So we had to live and die with each other every single day. And there was battles in every single practice. There was battles um, in the classroom because we, wasn't, we, weren't, we weren't used to that. Like Villanova, like a lot of people say, oh, when you go to school, college, people do your work for you. You're an athlete. Not at Villanova. We're in every single class. And all of the coaches are checking, making sure that we are in those classes. So I just think that. He's at a stage now where he pick and choose which type of players he wants. And those players come in understanding that I might be a McDonald's All-American and I might not play my first year. But I know this. I won't be recruited over. I know another McDonald's All-American won't come in here and play over me unless I'm just not – unless I just I'm, – I'm just like, hey, I'm not playing defense. But he, he knows this. And with him knowing that, I just think that um, – Coach has built an unbelievable platform for kids to be successful, not only one or two years, but for decades, for a decade plus in the NBA. And I'm living proof of that. Hey, Randy, you're, you're living proof, I think, of one word specifically, too. If, if I could, you know, kind of put a, put a, you know, a little spin on it maybe, and it's, it's the word that, correct me if I'm wrong, is posted all over the place, like in the facility and at the gym and, and everywhere at Villanova, attitude. How much attitude, and I don't mean the attitude in a wrong way, just attitude, attitude in life, having the right attitude, having the proper attitude in each moment. Sometimes it's, it's, a, it's an edgy attitude. Other times it's a positive attitude. Whatever it is, it's attitude, having the right attitude. How much will that be a factor this weekend on Saturday in that big game, obviously, against Kansas? I think just understanding that every single possession just 
take every single possession at like just just worry about the possession one possession at a time attitude if you if you turn the ball over next shot next play if you miss a shot don't worry about it the next one's going in just understanding that when you're under those lights nothing can affect you it comes with the game because no one has ever played a perfect game so there's going to be mistakes made they're going to be dunks they're going to be unbelievable shots made that's what the final four is that's what big time basketball is but attitude that you keep the same approach and you keep the same attitude and nothing can break the bind of those five and ultimately those 25 people that's traveling with Villanova that's in that locker room nothing can break it Randy, we, we've we've held you for a while, but I would be remiss if I didn't get out on this one as my last question. Two-parter. What do you remember from your NBA days about Toronto playing here, being here, the city? And then knowing Kyle the way you know him, I mean, maybe there's prop bets out there. Are we, is he going to – is the tough exterior going to break down on, 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 on Sunday in Toronto? Is, is Kyle going to – is Kyle going to let us inside because we know he loves the city, the city loves him? Or are we going to see tears? I know there's a prop bet for Coach K crying in the Final Four. <laughs> Do I go out and make one on Kyle Lowry on Sunday? Yeah, so i answer the second question first. I think that he will shed a tear. Like he, uh, he won a championship in that city, right? And not just that city. A lot of times when, when I look at it, and I remember when you guys were making a run, it was like it was – you know, it was a country on you guys. You guys are carrying that, that team in Toronto is carrying, you know, the country of Canada. And I think that that, you know, just that love, you know, walking through the streets, you know, getting off of the airplane, checking, going, getting, going through customs <laughs> and all of that stuff, getting to, um, Get into the hotel, just the respect and the love he's going to feel from from everyone there. By just the the eye contact, or just saying thank you, I think that that's going to touch him in a way where he will shed a few tears. And um, your first question that I'm going to answer next, I remember Toronto was cold as hell, man. <laughs> that's one thing. <laughs> Toronto was cold, but. I always remember it was like one thing that like stuck out to me, especially when we played you guys. This the arena was always full and loud. This was during the um your Chris Bosch days. On to Jose Calderon, Kyle Lowry, DeMar DeRozan, Terrence Ross and all those guys, like those days. But um I just re- like the city, I just remember your crowd being loud. And I just remember it being a, a cold arena. It just seemed like everybody was in there sitting down with their jackets on. That's what, that's one thing that always stood out to me when I was there. It's like, why well, everybody have their jackets on? Oh yeah, yeah. We're north. We're north of the border, so yeah. This is this is Toronto, but it's a beautiful city. Um, it's a super clean city, and the people there are um, extremely nice. I wish I had a chance to to actually play there, man. But um, it's a it's a cool city, man, and just the the atmosphere that you guys have built as fans through, you know, Drake and like hip hop and basketball and just being genuine, nice people. Um, it's one of the best places to play, um, in the NBA.
Well, and you got to come back in like May, June, July, August when it's 80, 90, even 100 degrees with the humidity and whatnot. Uh-huh. We can, yeah, there, there you go. There you go. You just, they, they got to change uh-huh. the NBA uh-huh. season then and so people know a different Toronto, Randy. <laughs> yeah. So I, I would drive, so I would rent an RV with my wife and my kids and a few friends, and we would drive from New Jersey um, to Niagara Falls, stay there for a night, and then we would go watch the Yankees play the Blue Jays. Nice. Okay. And then drop back. Okay. <laughs> so, hey, Jonesy, that sounds like a road trip we got to do, man, either with our families or just you and I. We'll rent an RV and, and, and drive to Jersey or something. Hey, Go check out a game at Yankee hey, Stadium. <laughs> maybe we get on the Foy Express, man. That's all I know. There we go. There we go. <laughs> oh, that was a rental. That was a rental. That was a rental. So. And I hey, Randy. Close enough, it was like eight and a half hours. So I felt close yeah. enough, and that's a nice trip. Well, we'll just let you pay for the gas now with the cost of gas these days for an RV. <laughs> yeah, now hey, Randy. he's going electric, man. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. There you go. Smart there man, go. smart man. Thanks for the time today. We really appreciate it, Randy. All the best. Appreciate you, Randy. No problem, man. Take care. Uh, great conversation with Randy Foy. Love having him on the show. And uh, some great insight into Kyle Lowry as a, as a person let alone as a, as a player, as a teammate, Jonesy. And again, Lowry coming to town on Sunday with the Miami Heat. And, and you brought it up towards the end of the conversation. Uh, I haven't seen a prop bet yet. And I know we can't, you know, as, as broadcasters, be, be dropping down dimes on that. But, but if I had a couple and I was able to do so, I, I think a tear will be shed. I think it will be an emotional evening uh, for Lowry coming back to Scotiabank Arena on Sunday. I, I think so too, Eric. I, I don't know how it can't be. Um, uh, Toronto loves its stars, but Toronto loves its grinders. And as much as people around the U.S. don't look as look at Toronto as a uh, you know as a blue collar town, oh they're you know they're multicultural and they're cosmopolitan, whatever. No, no, no. People in Toronto love the grinders. They love people, guys, or, or athletes you know, male, female, otherwise, that roll up their sleeves and get after it. And, and and I think that's why they loved Kyle Lowry so much. I mean, I heard people come on and say, man, he's like a hockey guy. Well, what's a hockey guy? You know, a guy that's willing to grind, you get him everywhere. And because he gave that to the city, and as Randy said, the city loved him back. Um, yeah, we're gonna, I, I think it's going to be real emotional on Sunday, really emotional. Well, before Sunday comes, though, the Raptors have to take care of business tonight. They are in Orlando for a one-game business trip, take a flight down to Florida for basically one day, play the Magic, and come right back up to get set uh, for that game against the Heat on Sunday. So Toronto entering action tonight, two and a half games up on the Cleveland Cavaliers with a victory over the Magic. They can make it a three-game lead with five games to go uh, before they get set for that game against Miami again coming up on Sunday. And, Jonesy, it will be a, a you know, a, I guess the back end of the schedule is, is obviously good, quote-unquote, or easier. And, again, I use that term loosely as well, easier on paper for the Raptors uh, when you look at the final few games of the season. But before they get to Houston and New York, They've got a three-game stretch on Sunday, Miami, Atlanta, Philly, all important games that will be as equally important for the opposition as well. Yes. Um, 
it's it's that time of year where, you know, these are the games that, you know, you're struggling for, you, that you let one get away in early January or mid-December or, uh, you know, mid-November, and, and you're struggling for them now. So uh, it, it it's going to be really interesting. And, and right now, always in the back of my mind will be what Bobby Marks told us about front offices, coaching staff, sitting, meeting, and maybe, just maybe, trying to manipulate the schedule and, and, and mess with the basketball gods. And Eric, I, I think what shocked me most about hearing it that candidly, that frankly from Bobby Marks was, we've always talked about it. You and I talk about it and we say it happens and people don't believe us. It, it, I remember the first interview I did with Sam Mitchell and, and, and he, he turned to me and when the microphone went off and he turned to me and said, Jones, why do you ask me a question that you know the answer to? I'm like, coach, <laughs> coach, when I say it, nobody cares. When you say it, I got me a story. Mm-hmm. And Bobby Marks gave us a story a couple hours ago by talking about manipulating. And, and, and we always knew it happened, Eric. We always thought it happened, but he punctuated it and, and verified that, yeah, it does happen. So... Uh, what do we got? A week to go. I'll be I'll be watching really carefully and maybe raise an eyebrow here to a to a win, an improbable win or improbable loss when it happens. Again, Raptors and Magic tonight. You'll get a double dip of Smith and Jones as we will be back with the broadcast of the game tonight and then Sunday as well with the Heat in town facing the Raptors. Folks, if you missed the tweet yesterday, uh, the Fan 590 uh, Twitter handle and uh, sent it information that uh, this is our final show, probably I would think until, I don't know, sometime in the fall perhaps, uh, if, if we're back, you know, fingers crossed, in terms of a daytime slot. Uh, effective Monday with the return of baseball and the Blue Jays, Blair and Barker will be occupying the 10 to 12 slot. So we will still keep doing a show. We'll be doing it sort of on a weekly or twice weekly basis, either finding a time slot for us or in podcast form. So we're not going away, but we are going away in this time slot. Thanks to our fabulous producer, Mark Boffo and technical director, Lance Kennedy, who've been with us the last four or five months doing the show. And to all those that have filled in over the time as well, uh, Danielle, Andrew, and so many others as well. We've got a slide and step aside. Thanks for tuning in to Smith and Jones.